Welcome to St. Mary's Mission, then and now. You can't talk about the history of St. Mary's without first talking about the Salish Indians. Salish is an English version of the word Salish, meaning the people. And at their greatest numbers, the Salish range from the Pacific Northwest coast eastward through the Intermountain area and out into the Great Plains. The Intermountain Salish were made up of five or six major bands, uh, some of which were centered in such places as the Big Hole, Three Forks, and here in the Helena area. Now, the Salish were closely related and had a special relationship with the Kalispell Indians, who became known as the Ponderays after the fur trappers entered the area. So the Kalispell and the Kootenai to the north, the Nez Perce and, and uh, Coeur d'Alene to the west, the Shoshone to the south. And so those tribes all interacted with each other. In the decades before Lewis and Clark arrived, the consequences of European arrival fully hit the region. And the Salish and their neighbors were greatly impacted in both loss of population and territory. According to Salish materials, in the 25 years before Lewis and Clark, 50 to 65% of the region's native peoples died from introduced diseases. And the, and the Salish and Ponderay populations that had once ranged from 20,000 as great as 60,000 had been reduced to two to 8,000 people by 1805. Now, by that same time, the Salish, Ponderay, and Kootenai of now western Montana had all been forced into the mountains by the Blackfeet Indians who had acquired firearms decades before this. So by the time the fur trappers entered the area, um, the Salish had been reduced to the Mountain Salish centered in the Bitterroot and the Coastal Salish in Oregon. Now, this is also the time when the Bitterroot Salish began, began to be called the Flathead Salish to differentiate between the two groups. The Coastal Salish did the practice that babies in the cradle boards would have their foreheads and skulls reshaped into a sloped shape. They thought that was more attractive. Well, the Bitterroot Salish did not do that practice. Their foreheads were naturally flat normal, and hence the Flathead Salish, where that came from. Now, at this point, the Bitterroot Salish lifestyle, I gotta get my clicker, I forgot, uh, saw them wintering in the Bitterroot. As spring came, they would begin to move, following as the camas and the Bitterroots bloomed, uh, gather the Cambium, then up over the Continental Divide in summer, over to the Three Forks area, to the Buffalo Jumps to put up meat, process it there, and then bring all that back over uh, at the end of the summer. The first non-Indians into the area were fur trappers from the Canadian fur companies. Now, the Northwest Fur Company had trappers in the region as early as the 1780s, and it ultimately is merged in 1821 with the huge Hudson's Bay Company that had all kinds of trappers uh, at the time. Now, you've got to remember the Louisiana Purchase had only extended the United States westward to the Continental Divide, and the Pacific Northwest had become known as the Oregon Country, and it had been agreed by the Convention of 1818 that the United States and Great Britain would jointly own that area, and that continued clear until 1846 at the end of the fur era. 
Uh, now, the Canadian fur companies had Iroquois Indians with them. Now, the Iroquois, the five tribes that made up the Iroquois Confederation from upstate New York, had been working as trappers and canoemen for the Canadian companies for years. And they had been brought out west to teach trapping techniques to the local Indian tribes. But the Iroquois tribes had been converted to Christianity 200 years before this. And so in the 1820s, the first Iroquois appear in what's now Western Montana. And by 1825, Ignace Lamousse and a group of Iroquois move into the Bitterroot with the Salish. He becomes known as Big Ignace. Now, he's adopted into the tribe, he marries a Salish woman, and it's Ignace that are telling the Salish that they needed black robes. Now, the black robes, of course, were the Jesuit missionaries from the Catholic Church. And Ignace was telling them that the, the black robes possessed, among other things, he told them this powerful medicine that could help their tribe in its survival and their future. Well, now you've got to remember what the Salish had been through in the previous 50 years or so, and they become very interested in having a black robe there. This is the first time that we can find out where you had an Indian tribe who began to actively seek out a priest to come and live with them. And in the 1830s, the Salish sent four delegations the whole way to St. Louis, Missouri, over 1,500 miles away, to get a black rope to come back to what's now Montana. Uh, the first trip in 1831, of the four who actually make it to St. Louis, none of them live to make it back to the Bitterroot. By 1835, Big Ignace decides, well, I'm already Christian and I speak French, I might have better luck. And so he takes his two adolescent sons and off they go. Now they safely reach St. Louis and meet with the Catholic Bishop Rosati, who was there. They give their request, but are told that, oh, the church, we have no black robe to send with you at this time. And it was such a remote location. Uh, but the request was heard. Ignace and his sons safely make it back to the Bitterroot. But 18 months pass, and no black robe has shown up, and Big Ignace decides, well, I'm going to make another trip. Now, no black robes had shown up, but in the previous three summers, groups of missionaries, a group of missionaries had come through the Bitterroot each of those three years. The first year, they were Methodists. Presbyterian, uh, excuse me, Methodist missionaries, and the following two summers they were Presbyterian missionaries. Well, they didn't wear black robes like the Catholic Jesuits did, and the Salish weren't interested, and the Protestant missionaries continued over the Bitterroot Mountains off further into the Oregon country. Now, Big Ignace, in the third trip, the second that he takes, in 1835, he takes four Salish braves with him, they make it as far as what is today Nebraska and are all attacked and killed by Sioux warriors. So two years later, in 1839, a fourth attempt is made. And this time, the delegation is made up of young Ignace, no relation to the other, and left-hand Pete. And they leave the Bitterroot heading west, excuse me, east, 
And they get as far as what is today Council Bluffs, Iowa, on the Missouri River. And there's a mission with the Potawatomi Indians. And at that mission is this man, Father Pierre Jean Desmet, the man who is destined to become known as the Apostle of the Rocky Mountains. Now, Father Desmet had been born in Belgium in 1801, and he had wanted to minister to the far western Indian tribes. But at that time, that was about as far west as the church went. So when he finds out where they're from and what they're after, he goes with them the rest of the way to St. Louis. They meet with Bishop Rosati, and he gets permission to come out the following year up to the, with the Salish, to meet the Salish out here. Now, the, oh, oh, I should just say quickly that at that point, left-hand Pete leaves St. Louis and alone travels through the cold, dark winter across the country back to the Bitterroot because he wants to forewarn the Salish that Father Desmond is coming so that they can get prepared and move to meet him when he arrives. Well, um, in 1840, Father Desmond and young Ignace, who has stayed behind with him, they travel with an American Fur Company caravan on the Oregon Trail. Now, the Oregon Trail had begun to be laid out as early as 1811 by fur traders and trappers. We're talking walking or horseback only at this point. And they come there on their way to the Green River of Wyoming to a rendezvous site to be able to pick up the beaver pelts. Well, at that point, Father Desmet is met by 10 Salish who are there to escort him to the rest of the tribe. From that point, they, now I know this map shows them, oh, there's my clicker, going around this direction. But I've got to tell you, in doing research for this presentation, multiple sources actually say that he, they went up through Jackson Hole over a pass in the Teton Mountains and came down into Pierre's Hole, Idaho, about in here. There, he was met by 1,600 Salish, Ponderay, and Coeur d'Alene Indians to welcome him into their world. At that point, they travel north, cross over what is now Manita Pass. I've got to change hands, I'm left-handed. And the first Catholic mass is said at Red Rocks Lake, north of Manita Pass. They continue on north to Three Forks for the hunt. Now, Father Desmet is at Three Forks from the third week of July to the end of August. And at the end of August, he's going back to St. Louis. The sailors aren't pleased with this, but he's saying, look, I'm going back to get additional missionaries, equipment, and supplies, and we will come to your homeland next year. He leaves an Indian in charge of prayers, and before he leaves, he baptizes the head chief of the Salish at the time, Chief Big Face, and almost 350 other Indians of the tribe. And he heads back to St. Louis. They actually escorted him for the first part of the way to make, it, make sure he safely made it. In 1841, the following year, six men leave St. Louis heading west. Father Desmet, Father Gregory Mangarini, Father Nicholas Point, and three lay brothers. Now, they travel in one wagon and three two-wheeled carts, the kind you walk beside. They arrive in the Bitterroot with the Salish on September 24th of 1841. 
That's 178 years ago, Tuesday, three days ago. Okay? And Father DeSmet is never the head priest at St. Mary's. He is traveling and moving around way too much. I mean, he gets there the third week of, or toward the end of September 24th. By the end of October, he's already over at Fort Colville, what is now near Spokane, Washington, getting wheat and oats and potatoes to bring back for agriculture. The following spring, he goes back, of course, to Fort Colville for more provisions. They don't have what he wants. He goes on to Fort Vancouver, which was Portland, Oregon. That trip between Portland and St. Mary's Mission, he did many times. Then you have his European travels. This man crossed the Atlantic Ocean 19 times in his lifetime. Okay? It is remarkable. One of his nicknames became the Intrepid Traveler, and it's believed he traveled 180,000 miles in his lifetime. Now, you had not only that regional travel going on, uh, but all of that European travel, and he would go back to Europe. He was raising, oh, I'm connected. He, would, he was raising money uh, to, to raise money for the missions in the Pacific Northwest. He was recruiting additional missionaries, getting equipment, so forth, and bringing all that back. It's said that at that time period, Europeans knew more about St. Mary's mission than they did our capital, Washington, D.C., because of Father DeSmet. Now, he's shown with the Salish right here, but Father DeSmet was very involved with negotiations uh, between the U.S. government and various Indian tribes. Uh, at the 1851 Council of Laramie, DeSmet was said to be, quote, more powerful than an army. He was the chief negotiator with Sitting Bull in 1868, and so very involved. Now, he died at the age of 72 in 1873 and is buried in the St. Louis area. But the black robe that he brought from Europe, who had the biggest influence in St. Mary's and the entire region, was Father Anthony Ravalli. Father Ravalli arrived at St. Mary's Mission in 1845 and began a 40-year experience among various tribes. Father Ravalli was born in 1812 in Ferrara, Italy. First born of a wealthy family, extremely educated. This was a true Renaissance man of the time period, folks. Father Ravalli was not only a priest, he was a doctor, a surgeon, a pharmacist, an architect, an engineer, an inventor, an artist, a sculptor, a mechanic, a carpenter. You get the idea here, okay? And he becomes so beloved by not only the Indian populations, but the non-Indian people, that he becomes known as the Good Samaritan of the Northwest. Now, during this time, a lot of changes are happening with the Salish as these cultures are blending uh, at the mission. Many Montana firsts were occurring during these early years. Not only the mission itself, the mother of missions, as St. Mary's uh, became known as, but, and he, that Father Ravelli was a doctor, but you had the first wheat that was grown and a grist mill that was built, thank you, Father Ravelli. So the first flour was milled. You had irrigation brought in from the nearby creek 
gardens and orchards were planted. Livestock was brought in, cattle, poultry, and swine, and a livestock brand developed, Cross on a Hill. The first sawmill was built, again Father Ravalli, and the first clapboard structures begin to appear. A Salish alphabet and dictionary is developed, and the first classes are taught in Salish. That whole area, that little area around the mission becomes a village of St. Mary's, it's called. And for this, those and others that I don't have time to do is why Stevensville is known as where Montana began, as we asked in, in the introduction. Now, who was leading the Salish during all of these changes? Well, Chief Big Face, who had been baptized, remember, by Father DeSmith at Three Forks, and who had greeted the black groups when they arrived in the Bitterroot homeland, he died about eight weeks after the black groups had arrived at the age of 90. Okay. Upon his death, Chief Victor becomes the head chief of the Salish. And what a story from Chief Victor. When he was 15 and his father was the head chief, that's when the Corps of Discovery came down from Lost Trail Pass into Ross's Hole, now the Sula Basin, and Lewis and Clark was able to train to get enough horses so that they could continue down the Bitterroot and over Lolo Pass. And here he is as a grown man, the head of the Salish tribe, and over uh, the next four years, he was the one dealing with the changes, not only from the black robes and what they brought, but the non-Indian traders and settlers that came into the area, the consequences of Montana's gold strikes in the 1860s, and we know what happened to the population and the changes that that brought, and dealing with the U.S. government. That was the Hellgate Treaty of 1855 that officially established the Flathead Reservation in the Jocko Valley north of Missoula, but by which Victor thought the Salish had been granted a conditional reservation to be able to stay in their homeland. Now, um, let's see, Victor died on July 4th of 1870 at the age of 80. And when he died, his son, Charlotte, became the head chief. Now, like his father, Charlotte really worked to try to keep the Salish in their ancestral homeland in the Bitterroot Valley. Uh, circumstances prevented it. Within two years of his leadership, General James Garfield shows up with an executive order saying that, okay, the Salish are be moved from here to the Flathead Indian Reservation uh, at the time. And the consequence, and that became known as the Garfield Agreement of 1872, uh, and uh, the consequence of that was that 60% of the Salish left at that point, headed north under the leadership of Chief R. Lee. Charlotte and the rest stay in the Bitterroot. Now, so many changes happened there throughout the 1870s and the 1880s. Um, white settlers had poured in. Huge apple orchards were planted on the west side of the valley. Uh, railroad tracks were laid right through Salish territory in the 1880s. And by the end of the 80s, the Salish were that were there still were basically destitute and surviving because of St. Mary's mission. By 1891, Charlotte and about 200 Salish that were still there at the time are escorted from the Bitterroot by the military 
north to the reservation, and he dies there in 1910 at the age of 80, uh, a bitter man. Uh, and so Chief Charlotte. Now, we have no photographs of the early chapels. They don't exist. Uh, the first chapel that was built by Father DeSmet and the others when they arrived in 1841, it got flooded out the first spring. They, they built it right on the east bank of the Bitterroot River, not realizing what our water levels do by early summer. So it was lost. The second chapel became too small within four years. And so the third chapel was built, and we're now up to 1846. Now, those years, things had been going extremely well between the Jesuit priests and the Salish Indians. Um, the, the Blackfeet Indians hadn't been attacking. Uh, the buffalo hunts had been good. You had an abundance of food from all the gardens and the livestock that had been brought in, and things were going well. Everything changes by 1850. And by 1850, the priests decide they've got to leave for fear of their lives. Now, what happened that would change the attitude so much? Basically, in a one sentence you know, reduction of this, is that the, um, the Salish became upset that the priests planned to go to convert the Blackfeet Indians to Christianity, which of course the priests would want to do. But to the Salish Indians, who had made four attempts to get to St. Louis and back for that powerful medicine, and they finally have it and things are going really well, and now you're going to give it to our enemies to share, they felt betrayed by that. And so the Salish pulled back from the church and its practices. And in 1850, the third chapel and its outbuildings are leased for a two-year lease for $250. This is the first legal conveyance of property in Montana history. And that two-year lease goes to John Owen, who is, goes by Major John Owen in history. And this is when Fort Owen is built, the trading post the first trading post in the Bitterroot that is now Fort Owen State Park in Stevensville. Now, in those two years, John Owen writes to the priests and tells them that the chapel was being mistreated by the Salish. They were drinking and gambling in there. And so the priests sent word back to, me, to John Owen to burn the chapel down that it was being desecrated, they could not allow that to happen. And so the third chapel was purposely burned in 1852. Now, where are the priests at this point? Well, now they have scattered, okay? They have been reassigned to other places. This is when St. Ignatius' mission is built in 1854 for the Pont Father Ravalli at Duscataldo Mission in Northern Idaho. So all these other things are going on. And John Owen ends up being the one that is actually dealing with the Salish for the next 16 years. Now, 12 years into that 16-year period, he says to Chief Victor in December, it's cold and you're living in a teepee and you're getting old. I'm going to have a cabin built for you. This is the cabin that was built for Chief Victor and his wife Agnes in um, oh, what is my year? Uh, 62. 62, thank you. And 18, I knew that. 1862. Uh, 
and he, Victor lives another eight years. Now, after the chapel, uh, the cabin was built four years later, see, the Salish request the return of the Jesuits to the valley. And in 1866, the fourth chapel is built. Well, Victor's cabin is already located here on, on that area of land, and that's why the fourth chapel is where it is today if you come to the mission. Now, the configuration, this wasn't quite right for 1866, because this section was the original chapel from 1866. We'll talk about the living quarters momentarily. But this small chapel became too small within 12 years. And so it was doubled in size, a choir loft was put in upstairs, the bell tower was added outside, the bell came out of a foundry out of Cincinnati, Ohio, and this new structure was dedicated in 1879. Now, inside the chapel, Father Ravalli had come back and reassigned back there to do the altar work of the fourth chapel. He had also done it of the third chapel that had been burned. Uh, please don't think the pews would have been there at that time. Uh, the Salish Indians sat on reed mats on the floor for mass. Those pews weren't even added until the 1940s, a full 50 years after the Salish were gone. But Father Ravalli carves the altar railing, the altar, the tabernacle, the alcove, the archwork with the decorative designs, the canopy on the ceiling. We'll talk about this statue uh, just in a minute. The curtained doorways went to the sacristy behind the altar. And so this is actually how the chapel inside of our chapel looks today. The carving of Mary <clears throat> that you see above the altar, Father Ravalli carved her out of a single cottonwood block. Now, she was put up in two pieces. You can see along here where her legs are joined together. Her dress was once dyed blue from berry juice, uh, but that has faded as the years have gone by. The two sh uh, little urns on these shelves on either side of her, Father Ravelli carved them out of wood, but then painted them to look like marble, uh, a material with, for which he had no access at that time. He made the candle holders himself on a hand lathe, and the large black ones that he made for funeral masses are in our museum uh, there at the mission today. The statue that was to the right of the altar is an original sculpture by Father Ravalli of St. Ignatius of Loyola, a man from the Basque country of Spain who was the founder of the Society of Jesus, which are the Jesuits. And how Father Ravalli made this is that iron was formed and shaped underneath that, that's burlap, that he used to drape over the iron. Uh, he carved wooden hands, wooden head, put glass eyes in there, and that is in our mission today, his original sculpture. Now the configuration behind the sacristy, at the, behind those curtained doorways in the chapel, you have this room, now part of this is chopped off, but this is, this was the priest's study. That would have been the head priest's office at the time. This was the dining room for the priests and any visitors at the mission. Above these two rooms were the sleeping quarters. And it's very short up there, about this tall, okay, is it. Uh, the kitchen here 
the lay brothers would have eaten in the kitchen. The two-story barn, you had a workshop downstairs and a hayloft upstairs where the lay brothers slept. Now, all of these rooms were interconnected from the chapel to the barn so that you didn't have to go out and about to get from one room to the other. Sometime between 1905 and 1908, uh, our sources vary, uh, a fire broke out and burned down the barn and the kitchen at that time, uh, though we have conflicting dates on that. Uh, after the chapel complex was uh, built, Father Rivelli's cabin was the next building constructed. This was built in 1869. Happy birthday, hey, it's 150 years old this year. And this building served not only as his home, but Montana's first medical clinic, hospital, pharmacy, and lending library. Father Rivelli doctored not only out of his cabin, but he traveled in a 200-mile radius around St. Mary's Mission, uh, doctoring anyone who needed him. Another birthday, oh, oh no, not quite yet. I want to show you the west side of the cabin oh, with the, the pharmacy window with the wooden shutters. An invention of Father Rivelli's. In his writing, he called this his ride-up pharmacy. Now, I want you to think about that. Right up pharmacy, the man invented the drive-through. A hundred and fifty years ago, it operated in that way. Amazing. Uh, the other 150th birthday that we're celebrating this year at the mission is of the sole remaining crabapple tree from the orchard that Father Ravelli planted back then. A transcendent variety of crabapple. 150-year-old crabapple tree is old people. Uh, the average age of a crabapple tree is 30 to 50 years, maybe up to 80. Uh, hundreds of grafts have been taken from this tree to keep the genetics alive because of the historic, historical significance of them. Father Rivelli, after a series of strokes, died on October 2nd of 1884 at the age of 72. He had asked to be buried by the Salish ancestors in the cemetery. The Indian graves are back here in this section of the cemetery. Father Valley is buried right here. Now, when word spread that he had died, money began to come in by donations, and within four years, by 1888, there was enough money to erect this 22-foot marble monument for him. Now, this would have been the year before Montana had statehood in 1889. And nine years later, in 1898, that was when Ravalli County was officially created from the southern half of Missoula County, uh, and how that came to be. Now, the Jesuit priests had really worked to try to keep the Salish in their ancestral homeland, but we know that didn't work and that all the Indians were gone by 1891. What happened to the, with the chapel at that point? Well, from 1891 to 1908, a priest would come from Missoula once a month to say Mass. From 1908 to 1921, St. Mary's was actually a mission church as part of the Hamilton Parish. But in 1921, it was granted diocesan status itself as a church, and that status remained clear until 1954 when the new St. Mary's Parish Church was built 50 feet to the south. 
This is our current grounds, the chapel complex, Victor's cabin, Father Ravalli's cabin. Okay. That concludes my part of the presentation. I'm going to turn this over to Lynn at this time. Thank you.